Well, please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, uh, to Jeremiah chapter 36. If you're using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that uh, starting on page 694. We're going to start this, uh, this morning by reading just the first 10 verses. Jeremiah 36, verses 1 through 10. Beloved saints, this is God's word, and so it is worthy of our full and undivided attention. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah ordered Baruch saying, I am banned from going into the house of the Lord so you are to go And on the day of fasting, in the hearing of all the people, in the house, in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord, and that everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people." And Baruch, the son of Neriah, did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about reading from the scroll the words of the Lord in the house, in the Lord's house. In the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. Then in the hearing of all the people, Baruch read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll and the house of the Lord, in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the secretary, which was in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. This ends the reading of God's word at this time. Let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in it. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet, is our guide through the dark. It is wisdom and truth that we follow each day. Your word is sweeter than honey. It is sharper than swords, it is healing, it is justice, and it is ours to follow and to obey. It is our understanding of grace and peace and love, and this is the reason we draw near to it. Speak to us through your word, we pray, through Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Jeremiah 17 warned, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's not a warning about our ability to deceive others. Our great problem, the great problem with our hearts, is their ability to deceive us. We have this scary ability 
to convince ourselves to pursue things that we know are bad for us, things that we know God has warned us against. And I'll be honest, I, I think it's people who usually do the right thing that are easier to deceive. You see, people who always do the wrong thing, people who always are following foolish pursuits, they know that they do foolish things and are easily led astray. They know they have bad judgment. It's the religious people, the pious people, the upstanding people who are caught off guard when they start to stray from the right path. And their thinking always goes something like this. I love God's word. I obey God's word. And this is something I want to do, therefore it must be what God wants me to do. It's, that's the kind of person I am. But it's easy, it's so easy to be hasty and to forget to open up God's word and to say, is this really what God wants? It's easy to assume rather than to ask to make arguments that sound great but are not grounded in God's truth. Now our hearts will seldom simply say, oh, you know what God's word says, ignore that. Our hearts are more subtle than that. And so they'll say, our hearts will say things like this, has God really said? Or is that the loving thing to do? Or, doesn't God want me to be happy? Or, wouldn't it just be more practical to just, and then you fill in the blank. But when we go down the wrong road, we will always try to keep God's word at arm's length. Never let it too close. We will always try to make the discussion about man and his opinions, because those are easier to dismiss than God's word. I see this all the time. When people agree, they say things like, I love this church. It always uh, takes God's word seriously. But when they disagree, it's suddenly, I know you don't believe, or you believe this or that, or I, I know this church thinks, or I know it's the OPC's position, or something like that. Suddenly it's as if the Bible doesn't even exist and we're not going to open it up and see what God says. We're just going to make it about your opinion and mine. Because, you know, who's really to say who's right? Jeremiah 36 is about a king's attack on God's word. But a danger exists. See, it would be so easy to read about Jehoiakim and his attack on God's word simply shake our heads and think how foolish he was. But God doesn't allow that. At every point, God calls us to examine our own hearts and to heed Jeremiah's warning that our hearts can be deceitful. If we're not willing to recognize our temptation to ignore God's word, we can never address that danger. But God's word is amazing. God's word can't be ignored. It can't be destroyed. It will eventually 
force us to give an account. And we are never going to win if we go to war with God's word. We will never beat his word. And so it is better to learn to seek it out. It is better to learn to submit to it. And so as we work our way through this chapter, we want to see first how God's word was read, then how God's word was rejected, and then finally how it was resurrected. See what I did there? Three R's. Read, rejected, and resurrected. But what we're going to see as we look at this is that God's word is eternal and it is the only way to discover the path to eternal life. God's word is eternal. It's the only way to discover the path to eternal life. And that's what we want to meditate upon from Jeremiah 36 uh, this morning. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, who was the king of Judah, God came and commanded Jeremiah to write down all the words that God had spoken to him, all the warnings he had brought to the people since the days of Josiah the king years before. And he wanted there to be an abiding record of what had been declared through his prophet. I mentioned last week that Jeremiah is not written in chronological order. It is structured thematically. Uh, What we read here in chapter 36 uh, took place when Jehoiakim was king, which was before the exile that uh, took place, which is recorded in uh, chapter 28 of Jeremiah. Uh, and God's promise to restore his people that follows in chapters 29 through 33 and so on. It's as if Jeremiah uh, is now returning to those days before the exile when there was still time to hear and heed God's warnings. And I think the idea is that Jeremiah wants us to understand that these warnings don't stop being important simply when the exile took place. They're there for the generation that returns from the exile. They're there for the next generation and the next generation. And they're there for us. Every generation must ask, what does God call us to? What does he warn us of? And will we listen? And I think being structured out of order helps that be driven home for us. Each generation, each new generation will be tempted to ignore and to reject God's word. And each needs to learn from the mistakes of the past, lest they repeat those mistakes. And so Jeremiah returns to these warnings as if to ask the new generations if they have learned those lessons. God had Jeremiah write this all down, so that even after Jeremiah is long gone, those next generations, including us today, might hear these warnings afresh. And hear these words. Because God's word is always applicable. It never expires. And it never becomes useless. But once it's written down, Jeremiah is not allowed to take it to the people in the temple. He has been banned from going there because of his faithfulness in proclaiming God's word. He's very unpopular. And so he's been banned from going into the temple. It's tragic. Tragically ironic that the one thing unwelcome in God's house is God's word. But this doesn't stop God, does it? Jeremiah simply hands the scroll to Baruch, his uh, secretary, and sends him to the temple to read it. Because it's the word that's important, not the one who bears it. 
Jeremiah could have easily believed that unless he personally went, it was pointless, hopeless. But he knows better. He knows that the power lies in the word of God and not the messenger who brings it. That's far too easy to forget, I think, isn't it? Far too often churches fall in love with the personalities of messengers rather than the content of God's word. Beloved, the most boring preacher who accurately proclaims God's word is worth far more than the most relatable and polished preacher who shares only his own opinion. One will preach words of life and the other will prepare a banquet in the grave. If we as a congregation ever think our hope lies in our pastors and not the God who speaks in scriptures, we're already lost. A pastor should be able to die, retire, or move, and the church call a new pastor and move on without a hiccup. If it's built on God's word, it can. If it's built on a personality, it will die. Because God's word is abiding and it's eternal. And if that is the foundation of the church's ministry, it can't be shaken. It will continue unimpeded generation after generation, though preachers come and go. And so Jeremiah says, it's not me, it's the word. Baruch, you take it. You read it. You proclaim it. And you'd think this was a good time. The fasting was meant to make people think about their need for God. It's meant to cultivate humility. In verse 11, we meet a man named Micaiah, the grandson of Shaphan. Shaphan uh, was instrumental in the reform under Josiah, Jehoiakim's father. Josiah is one of Israel's most famous kings. He was the boy king who became king at eight. Josiah began to bring reform to the land because it had descended into gross idolatry. Josiah asked Shaphan, Micaiah's father, to repair the temple. He put him in charge of it. And while doing that, Shaphan found the scroll in the temple and he opened it up and he read it. He had never heard these words before. They were the words of Deuteronomy. I think it's hard for us sometimes to imagine a period in Israel's history when people didn't recognize the words of Deuteronomy. But that time existed. God's people had fallen into such rebellion that they never read his word. They ignored it. It was as foreign to them as any other book of another land. And yet Shaphan opens it up. He reads it. And immediately is, is overwhelmed by its weightiness. And he knew the implications for the people. And so he brought it and he read it to the king. And so when we read about Micaiah hearing the word of Jeremiah and running to the king in verse 11. The echoes are intentional. He's doing the exact same thing his grandfather had done years before. 
And initially, the echoes of history continue. The, the leaders to whom Micaiah first come, if we were to read on, they, they, they hear the scroll and they fear God. And they ask him, I love this in verse 17, if you look there real quick, the leaders look to Micaiah and they say, tell us please, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? They want to know if this is authentic. They were like the Bereans before the Bereans were like the Bereans. Has God really said, is this God's word? Tell us, did you make this up, Baruch, or has this come from the prophet of the Lord? Because if it is, if this is God's word, we must listen and we must respond. It's like the story with Shaphan playing itself out all over again a few decades later. There's this strong family resemblance between uh, Shaphan and his, his grandson Micaiah. And the question is, will the king, Jehoiakim, also have a family resemblance? Will he respond like his father Josiah did when he heard the word of God? When Josiah heard the words of the scroll, he tore his clothes. A sign of grief and brokenness over the sins of his people. He humbled himself before his God and he sought to know from the scriptures what they could do to avoid the judgment they so clearly deserved. But what about Josiah's son? What about Jehoiakim? What's his response? It wasn't quite so humble. And this is really important because a king's decisions will affect the entire nation. When Josiah led his people in humble repentance and reform, God's judgment was stayed. God expects more from those in authority. Uh, He tells us to those who uh, much is given, much is required. And so we know that if Jehoiakim will hear these words and humble himself and repent, if he learns to fear God and follow after him, he may save his people from disaster. But if he remains rebellious, if he turns a deaf ear to God's word, if, if Jehoiakim hardens his heart, then the whole nation will suffer. So let's read verses 22 through 26. It was the ninth month and the king was sitting in the winter house and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire and was in the fire pot. Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Even when Elnathan and Deliah and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, and Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch, the secretary, and Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. As you picture the scroll, two big sides, and as it's unrolled, a few columns at a time, maybe three or four to read, the king would patiently listen, And then he took out his knife, cut off those three or four columns that were red, and threw them in the fire. 
where we had a resemblance between Micaiah and his grandfather, Shaphan. Here we only have a divergence between Jehoiakim and his father, Josiah. He did this until the entire scroll was consumed. Cutting and burning, cutting and burning, cutting and burning. It wasn't a a rash response. There was something deeply intentional about this. He cuts it off, throws in the fire, says, proceed, read on. Cuts it off, throws in the fire, read on. It's brazen. It's calculated. There's no fear of God in the king's heart. It's a game. And there's even a theatrical element to his rebellion. Something he wanted everyone to see. And yet his actions tell us something that deep down inside is really going on. It's not just enough to laugh at God's word. It wasn't just enough to ignore it. He had to destroy it. He had to get rid of it. Because deep down inside he knows. He knows what it is. He knows it's God's word. He knows it's true. He knows it can't be ignored. Not truly. And so he had two choices. Surrender or all-out war. He knows that if he gave any indication that it was true, the people would expect him to surrender, to repent. And so he puts on this elaborate act of indifference. I don't hate it. It's not worthy of my hate. But we could put it to good use and at least stay warm. I mean, finally, it will do something profitable and beneficial for us. Because the words on it aren't worth the parchment they're written on. We really can't take this serious, can we? But what did he do immediately afterwards? He ordered the arrest of Baruch and Jeremiah. And he showed that he was not truly indifferent. Why arrest these two if they're no threat, if they're no harm, if they're no big deal? You only arrest them if they're a threat, if there's a reason to fear them. Now, before we sit back too comfortably and mock Jehoiakim or those today who, like him, feign an indifference to God's word, let us be honest with our own struggles because this temptation is far more real than we ever want to admit. When we, when we agree with the Bible, what do we do? We, we wave it over our heads or we wave it in someone's face and say, this is what God says. But when we struggle... When we don't agree, what then? We fold our arms, rub our chin, because that makes you look wise, and you say something like, well, it seems to me, or wouldn't the more loving thing to do be, or or, my favorite, I'm just not comfortable with this, and so on. And you know what it is that makes people uncomfortable today. You know what it is that people usually struggle with with God's word. It's always the same thing. The call for sexual purity. God's demand that you only marry not just a Christian, but a strong Christian who's going to help you grow. Differing roles for men and women in the church or in the home. Differing views from society on gender identity and sexual orientation. Church discipline makes people uncomfortable. Or having to make a hard decision to remove aid 
from someone who has abused it. And suddenly we find all sorts of reasons to dismiss those things. We say things like, well, that was written in a less enlightened age. Or we've discovered so much since then. The Bible was written by chauvinists, by this, that. Or it was heavenly influenced by its time and we live in a different time. Many of us cut and burn God's words in our heart far more often than we want to admit. But God's word proves indestructible. So let us read the last few verses, 27 through 32. Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were on the first scroll, when Jehoiakim the king, which Jehoiakim the king of Judah has burned. And concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, Thus says the Lord, you have burned the scroll, saying, Why have you written it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut off from it man and beast? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out by the heat of the day and by the frost by night. And I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, but they would not hear. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and he gave it to Baruch the scribe, son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and many similar words were added to them. When God saw what Jehoiakim did, he, he didn't run in fear thinking all was lost. Oh no, he's burned my word, what will I do now? He simply said to Jeremiah, write it again. And did you notice that line? And many similar words were added. The second scroll not only contained everything the first scroll had, but more. God's word doesn't disappear when we don't like it. We can't destroy it. People have been trying for thousands of years. Burning God's word doesn't make it go away. Any victory the king appeared to have over God's word was but temporary and fleeting. Before he knew what happened, the word was resurrected from the ashes stronger and fuller than before. We can no more destroy God's word than we can destroy God. God's word is what it is because it is God's word. To fight his word is to fight the one who gave it. Who can pretend to be indifferent? We can try. We can play at indifference. But deep down, we know that it comes with authority. It demands a response. It requires surrender. When Jehoiakim refused to surrender, there were consequences. God declared, He shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out by the heat of day and frost by night. 
But it got worse. God went on and said, I will punish his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disasters that I have pronounced against them. But they would not hear. See, the king was not the only one to suffer for his arrogance. As goes the king, so goes the people. His pride brought harm upon all those he was called to serve. But what if there was a king that didn't bring calamity upon his people? What if there was a king who who did not make his people suffer for his arrogance, but a king who was willing to suffer for his people's arrogance? What if there was a king who lived a life of submission and surrender in order to serve others? If we could find a king like that, then the people would not suffer. They would be blessed. They would not be overcome with judgment. They would be delivered from it. That's exactly what we find in Jesus. He told his disciples that the Father had commanded him to lay down his life for his people, and he willingly obeyed that word. As the hour approached, he asked for relief, but he did not demand it. He submitted. He listened. And he is our only hope. If we place our trust in ourselves or any earthly king, we will only meet with judgment. But Jesus promised, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Did you notice what Jesus said? It wasn't just anyone who believes in my word, as if it could be abstracted from God himself. He says, anyone who believes in my word and him who sent me, because the two are one and the same. Our battle is not ultimately with the word of God, but the God of the word. Because who has the right to declare what is right? Who gets to hold us accountable? Will we submit? Will we surrender? Deep down, we know what's right, but we struggle because surrender is so hard. But it's the only thing that makes sense. It's the only road to comfort. In Jeremiah's scroll were words of truth, words of life. They revealed the God who created all things, the author of life itself. Years later, we are told that God himself would take on flesh and blood and become man in order that he might perfectly reveal himself to us. And that's why... The Gospel of John calls Jesus the Word because he's the perfect revelation of God. And because he's the Word of God, he does what God's Word has always done. He confronted sin as God has always done. He offered grace to those who would repent as God has always done. And he was hated as God has always been. And they tried to destroy him as they have always done with God's word. But just like that scroll of Jeremiah, he proved to be indestructible. And so on the third day, he rose again, more powerful than ever, with the authority to give eternal life to all who would turn to him in faith. 
Jesus Christ is the truly indestructible word. And that truth is brought uniquely home to us this morning in the Lord's Supper. The bread and wine are pictures of the flesh and blood of Jesus, reminders that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. They're pictures of his flesh and blood and death, reminding us that he submitted to his father's commands and he paid the ultimate price for his people. And as pictures of his flesh and blood, they remind us that his tomb is empty. We cannot visit his body in this world because he has been raised from the dead. He has ascended into heaven, into glory, reminding us that any who place their hope in him have indestructible lives as well, that even if they die, they will live for him, with him forever in heaven. And so our Lord invites us today to come in humble surrender and to cling to Jesus Christ, the indestructible word. And so I'd like to ask the elders to come forward as we prepare to receive this this morning. Please join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for your scriptures. They know us better than we know ourselves. They expose the deceitfulness of our hearts. They expose where we are deaf to your words. Father, grant us submission. Grant us a love for your word, for there is freedom, there is peace, there is life and no other. We thank you for your indestructible word. Teach us to run to it, to submit to it, and to be conformed to it, that in doing so, we might be more like you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.